It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 99, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Chris McGuire and his wife, Yuli, own and operate Two Onion Farm in Belmont, Wisconsin. With four acres of vegetables and three quarters of an acre of apples, all certified organic, Two Onion Farm is packing 300 CSA shares each week for delivery in Madison, Wisconsin, Dubuque, Iowa, and Galena, Illinois. Chris digs into the details of weed control without tractors on Two Onion Farm, with an emphasis on prevention and reducing the bank of weed seeds in the soil. We also explore details of the farm's use of drip irrigation to make the most of a limited water supply. We talk extensively about Two Onion Farm's organic apple production, including how they manage that alongside of the vegetables, and how they incorporate it into the marketing for their CSA shares. Chris also gets into the ways that Two Onion Farms manage their worker share program and how they've changed that over the years as their employee management has gotten better. And given that they've improved their employee management, Chris also talks about how he's improved their hiring process and their employee engagement. We also hear about Two Onion Farms' new transplant production greenhouse and the energy savings and automation features they included when it was constructed last year. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest business management texts, farming essays, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Chris McGuire, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Yeah, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Really appreciate your making time to join us today. I'd like to start as we usually do with asking you to give us the background of Two Onion Farm. How many acres are you guys farming? Where are you? How are you selling that produce? All of those kinds of details that you, you know, the farmer introduction. Sure. Yeah. So my wife, Yuli, and I run the farm. Um, We're in Belmont, Wisconsin, which is about an hour southwest of Madison, close to Dubuque, Iowa. We moved here in the fall of 2003, Uh, Kind of started farming right away in 2004 and and just gradually ramped up over a few years. Um, We own 12 acres. It's an old farmstead with, you know, a farmhouse and a lot of outbuildings and barns. So we really can only use about four to five of that, of that 12. Um, And yeah, we are primarily doing CSA. That's been kind of our, our model since 2005, really. Um, Last year, we had 489 shares, a little more than half of those go to folks in the Madison area, which is about an hour from us, and the rest are distributed between Dubuque, Iowa, uh, Platteville, Wisconsin, a small town near us, and and Galena, Illinois. Uh, So we actually do two delivery days a week. Um, One day we go to Madison, and the other day we uh, go to the other sites, and we have two harvest days, um, you know, one before each of the two delivery days. Um, yeah, as far as, you know, labor, um, I am pretty much, you know, farming all the time during the growing season, you know, more than full time. Um, we have three children and Yuli does a lot of the day to day, you know, kind of childcare and sort of taking care of our house and making sure that our lives stay sane and all. So she's really only, like, you know, doing farm, farm work about half time, I'd say. Um, and we have hired employees uh, every year since since 2007. Uh, this past year, it was about six full-time equivalents at the peak of the season um, and, you know, tapering off to fewer in the spring and the fall. 
And yeah, about 90 to 95% of our sales come from CSA in recent years. We do a small amount of selling to a couple of local grocery stores, the Dubuque Food Co-op and the Driftless Market in Platteville. And um, we, we're right now farming just a little less than five acres. So we have four acres of vegetables and about three quarters of an acre of apples. And that's all certified organic. So with four acres of vegetables, you guys are doing 489 CSA shares? Yeah. Now, I should sort of clarify that. Um, we do a lot of every other week um, shares and also some short season delivery. So in a given week, we're really only packing about 300 boxes. So I'm maybe you know, to lower that number a bit for you. That feels a little bit more like in line with, with the kinds of numbers that I'm used to seeing. How are you farming those five acres? Are you guys working on a on a tractor system or two-wheel tractor system? Yeah, we, we have two tractors. Um, and so yeah, we have we we do use the tractors for you know spreading soil amendments, um, you know all the tillage, uh, laying plastic mulch for the crops that we use that. Um, but we do all pretty much all our weed control by with hand tools, well either you know wheel hose and hose, or in a couple of cases we'll use like a BCS with a rototiller for tilling some wider aisles like between winter squash. Um, so, yeah, once the crop is in the ground, we really don't do anything with the tractor. Um, and then we do do a little bit of tractor-assisted harvesting, like under, undercutting root crops, um, and then, you know, mowing and tilling in the crop, of course, will be back on the tractor. Uh, I really, um, we, we had one tractor until we started growing apples, and the second tractor is, was kind of primarily purchased to be sort of our orchard tractor. It's a narrower one that we use in the orchard. Um, although we do sometimes, you know, are able to use it in the veggies as well. So I always call up Google Maps of the farms that I'm talking to, and, and I'm noticing that, that you're in that part of Wisconsin that isn't a bunch of flat land. It's, you know, the roads are, the roads are curvy. Um, in fact, as I'm looking at your fields, they're, they're, a lot of them are at, at slight angles to each other. You know, it, it, it definitely looks like you're farming on some hillsides. Yeah, yeah, it's um, maybe between a five and ten percent slope, so it's not you know really steep, but it's certainly steep enough to worry about. Um, yeah, and to put it in context, and we're not in like the really sort of rugged up and down area of the the driftless region, but um, you know it's it's certainly it's a gentle rolling terrain, and um, no, that's that's always been a concern for us, as you you know said, we try to lay out our our rows and and field on the contour to sort of control the you know, flow of water. And um, we've, you know, done some experimenting with ditches and waterways to divert water, um, but it's kind of an ongoing struggle to really farm that land well in vegetables, especially in a wet year like this where we had some really torrential rains. Um, that's one of the things that actually motivated us to start growing some perennial fruit was to, you know, have a permanent ground cover that wouldn't, you know, be susceptible to erosion at all. How intensively are you cover cropping? Is that a is that an important part of your erosion control strategy? Yeah, it is. Um, we aim to have about half the field covered in winter rye over the winter. Um, basically, you know, any ground that we're not, that we have harvested by about October 10th and that we're not going to plant before, you know, May 10th or so, we, we try to have in winter rye. Uh, during the summer, we don't do a great deal of cover cropping. We do a lot of double cropping between spring and, and fall vegetables. 
and that really kind of minimizes the windows we have for cover cropping sort of within the growing season. We do a little bit of buckwheat or um, you know spring or fall oats here and there, but I mean as much as we can, we we try to. Um, we have a relatively small farm, and it's a bit of a you know crunch for us to you know get the production and the income we want on the one hand, and then to you know sort of farm the, the the right way on the other hand and to you know do adequate cover cropping and so on yeah because you guys are are kind of locked in there landwise your your patch of land isn't a isn't a tidy little rectangle it's a, it's it's a if i'm remembering right from geometry class this is a trapezoid uh yeah i mean it's it's i mean mostly it's a triangular I mean, it's it's the corner of a, a big, you know, what was a big 160-acre square farm, and they cut off the little corner with the house and buildings and a small field and, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and, yeah, we're surrounded by a road and by some conventional grain fields. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're kind of landlocked in, as far as we don't really have a good opportunity to expand, and no one seems to really want to sell in our neighborhood. Right, and it's not like there's just another small field next door that you could pick up, from what I'm no, seeing. No, it's a 150 acre field next door. Yeah, one of the things that I've heard about you, and one of the things that that impressed me as I was looking through your website, is you really emphasize the reliability of your production. And and I think usually when people are talking about reliability, it means that they've got some good systems in place, especially for weed control and irrigation. Um, you said you're doing all your weed control without track, or at least most of your weed control without tractors. Yeah, yeah, and um, I feel like we do you know a pretty reasonable job of, of keeping weeds under control, um, at least in the sense that we're not you know losing a lot of yield. Um, you know, I can think in the last couple of years, you know, each year there may be a planting or two where you know the weeds got a little bigger than they should have and probably impacted the eventual yield of the crop. But on the whole, it's not you know it's not a huge. Um, it's not, you know, something that reduces the yield a lot. Um, you know, I, but I don't have a really, you know, sort of, um, you know, a great theory or a silver bullet about, you know, how to keep the weeds under control. I feel like it mostly boils down to having enough people, um, on hand to, you know, go out and do the hoeing and weeding when it needs to be done. Um, we do, we do place an emphasis certainly on, um, keeping weeds from going to seed. And then that has really paid dividends, especially in the spring. Um, you know, we used to have these situations where spring carrot plantings or, you know, peas would just get overwhelmed by foxtail. Or, um, and, you know, we really had, if we you know, didn't keep up on the weeds for a week or two, we could just like lose a crop. Um, and that doesn't happen anymore. Just, you know, the density of the seedlings that are coming up isn't as great. And so it gives us some more leeway actually in the really hectic early part of the growing season um, I guess the flip side of that is it costs us time and energy at the end of the growing season when we're like really constantly walking through plantings, trying to pull out stuff before it goes to seed, even though it's not going to have any appreciable effect on the yield of the crop. Um, so yeah, that's kind of our, our weed control, um, you know, strategy. And it's not really a great deal to it. You know, I, I sort of walk the field once a week and, um, try to, you know, look at every planting and see what, where the weeds are going to, you know, are really starting to get, get larger and prioritize what we need to do. And, 
Um, and then just really having enough people out and around to, to go out and execute that is the key. What kind of tools are you using for weed control? If, if Just walk us through something like a carrot crop or a beet crop and, and how you would – and the tools that you would use at, at each step of the way, how you would approach your weed control. Sure. Yeah. Um, so say with carrots, I mean, that's something that's certainly a crop that suffers a lot from weeds. Um, you know, we, we see them uh, four rows per bed. Um, we don't get, you know, the perfectly evenly spaced rows that you would want for mechanical cultivation. We're, we're marking our rows with seed clamps on the back hood of a rototiller and then following those lines and seeding with a push jang seeder. So they're, you know, fairly uniformly spaced, but not perfectly. Um, yeah, our first, you know, attack on the weeds would be, um, you know, depending on the time of year, but, you know, probably two, three weeks after seeding. Um, and that would be to wheel hoe the aisles between the beds. So, you know, one or, you know, two, two to three passes with the wheel hoe to clear out that space. Um, and then using like a stirrup hoe to sort of do that space between each of the rows within the bed. Um, so at that point, you know, the only weeds that should be left would be in just in a narrow strip kind of within the row of carrots. Um, and then you usually we'd wait at least start wait at least a day or even, you know, four or five days and then come back when you can clearly see what was killed with the hoeing and what survived and then try to do a really exhaustive hand weeding. And that, that's certainly the most time consuming part of it, but you know, everyone crawls along the bed and, you know, using their fingers or a little um, hand hoe, getting out all the weeds in the row and try to leave the, the bed absolutely clean with nothing in it at that point is the goal, um, which is, you know, never achieved, but that's, that's the goal I put out there and, you know, try to enforce as much as possible. Um, and after that, it really depends on, you know, what, how much the weed pressure is in that particular bed. And, um, but it would sort of be, I we'd usually go through at least one more time with often a wheel hoeing of the aisles um, because, you know, there's really never any crop canopy in a crop like carrots that will reach out into the aisles between the beds. So um, that's where you tend to get the most weeds. And then a hand weeding, you know, maybe once or twice more within the bed. Um, really, we actually end up doing more hand weeding later in the year. Um, as I kind of mentioned before, it's it's a little bit paradoxical because the weeds don't get as big and they're not actually as much of a competitive threat to the crop. But um, since we're trying to keep them from going to seed, they do go to seed at a smaller size and kind of more readily late in the year. And so we have to be really vigilant about, you know, pulling stuff out before it goes to seed. And for that, we use um, like just plastic crates, like basically harvest crates that are solid, you know, without holes, not vented. And we'll pull out the, the cedars, you know, the weeds that are about to go to seed or, you know, or have flowering, whatever. Anything that's close to maybe flowering goes in that tub and gets dumped at the edge of the field in the fence row. Um, just to make sure. Because, you know, you can definitely see if you pull out a, a weed in many cases that's close to going to seed and leave it on the ground. And, you know, with its last dying breath, it'll, you know, try to mature <laughs> some seeds. And, yeah. <laughs> um, we're trying to avoid that. All right. And and what about for irrigation? What, how are you managing that? Yeah, we use only drip irrigation. So our water source is um, a well. is kind of the original, sort of, well, not the original, but it was the farm well that was here when we moved here. Um, and it doesn't 
you know, we don't feel like we have the water supply to really um, use overhead irrigation where you're kind of wasting, you know, water to some extent. Um, we can just cover our acreage doing drip irrigation with the well and the pump we have now, which is producing about 20 gallons a minute. Um, so, yeah, it's all drip irrigation. We have, um, since uh, last spring, we have buried main lines that carry the water, you know, through the through the field, and there's a riser periodically where we have a little manifold, and that will control a zone of, of the drip irrigation. Um, and yeah, we're just using your drip drip tape. We're laying it by hand down each row um, right after transplanting or seeding, and um, and so it's pretty much always there. The only crop we don't irrigate is garlic, uh, but everything else, just as a matter of course, we put the drip tape down as soon as we plant. Um, and I feel like that's pretty important. So then, you know, when you do get into a dry spell, you're not in a situation where we have to all of a sudden run out and install a bunch of irrigation lines. You know, everything has it all the time, and it's always ready to be to be you know turned on and watered. So um, you're not moving your drip tape from beds to bed like I've seen some farms do. No, no, it stays there from planting until harvest, um, and we we will reuse it for you know, like a spring and a fall planting in the same year. Um, but no, other than that, it's, yeah, it's sort of just dedicated to that one planting. You said you reuse it from spring to fall. Do you reuse it from year to year? Is it a, is it a disposable product on your farm? No, we don't, unfortunately. Um, yeah, we've, we, fortunately we can recycle it now, which is good. Um, but no, if we, in our experience, it's a, well, two, two reasons we don't keep it over winter. One is it seems to tend to develop, you know, just more holes as it ages and pretty soon from financial standpoint, you know, the the value of the time and the little couplers that you're installing to fix the leaks, you know, outweigh the, the financial benefit of you reusing that row of drip tape, which is fairly cheap, you know, the drip tape itself. Um, and the other thing is, you know, it, it's never as easy to handle as it is the first time when you get it off that factory roll. Um, you know, we have a, a tool, um, you know, a crank that we can re-roll the drip tape on a spool to reuse it, but it's just not the same and not as easy to, um, you know, on roll and to handle as it is when it comes, you know, perfectly off that factory roll. And do you have any tips? I mean, since you're using so much of this on your farm for keeping it in place once you get it out, I mean, Wisconsin's a windy state. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and it, it's, it's a battle. Uh, you know, once, once the crop canopy has reached a decent size, it, for us, it's never a problem because then it's kind of protected and doesn't move around a ton. But in those early weeks, especially in the spring when the wind is strong, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and we do end up going out there sometimes and just, you know, sorting out spaghetti and trying to straighten out trip tape lines that have blown all over the place and gotten tangled with each other. Um, you know, the only really solution we have is using staples, you know, putting in a few on a road to hold it down. Um, and we we do that, especially in the spring. It's a pain in the neck because um, you have to get them out when you pull the drip tape after harvest and finding those staples and, and you know, sometimes a challenge. Um, but we feel it, you know, it outweighs the, the time to sort out the drip tape after each windstorm in the spring, too. Talk to me about your apple production. You, at three quarters of an acre, it almost sounds like a sidelight, but... It's important enough to your operation that I mean, you guys charge extra if you want apples in the CSA, and and you make kind of a big deal about it on your on your web presence. Yeah, yeah, it's um, well, we, to give some history behind it, we 
we started planting them in 2012. Um, and at the same time, we actually planted a, a number of other perennial fruits, you know, grapes, currants, sour cherries, uh, kiwi fruit, uh, pawpaws. And, um, and, you know, at, at our motivation at the time was we wanted to sort of, you know, expand the crop mix, what we could offer in our CSA and make our CSA more appealing. Um, you know, I, sort of as a general rule, I, the public prefers sweet, you know, fruit to vegetables, you know, in produce departments and stores, you know, fruits generally outsell vegetables by a large margin is my understanding. And we wanted to kind of capitalize on that. And then also, um, we were interested in the, you know, growing a perennial crop to at least minimize soil erosion in some parts of our field. Um, another thing we were thinking of is, is the actual the ergonomics, at least with tree fruit, we felt like we'd be working, you know, standing up <laughs> most of the time. And, um, we're getting older and, and that was something we were thinking about. Um, and our, our goal was that we would plant fruit for our CSA and then, you know, maybe reevaluate after, some years and see if we actually wanted to kind of switch our overall crop mix from vegetables to fruit, you know, either mostly or exclusively. Um, and then very quickly within a year, well, within one to three years, we eliminate all the fruit except for the apples. Um, and there's some of the reasons were kind of specific to the individual fruits, but overall the reason was it was just too much to manage. Um, a lot of that fruit is horticulturally really challenging to grow uh, in the sense that there's a lot of pests and you can control them organically, but, um, you know, it takes a lot of monitoring and staying on top of them and doing timely sprays and, you know, doing all that at the same time as growing, you know, the 20 to 25 vegetables was just too much. And, and, you know, I felt like we we couldn't do it well, um, and it was stressful and so on. So we eliminated everything but the apples. Um, we kept the apples because they're you know, one of the more popular fruits. They have a long harvest season, so we felt like, you know, for the work we invested in managing the diseases and insects in the apples, we would at least get, you know, a long season of, of harvest, and then some of them can be stored, so um, we'd be sort of getting a big return on that, that time. Whereas with something like grapes that are fairly perishable, you can only really have them for you know a few weeks, and um, all that work doesn't really give you as much return in your in your CSA boxes or in your marketing. Um, and yeah, we know we've kind of expanded the apples since then. Um, you know, I have to be pretty upfront that a lot of that has to do with personal interest. Um, I I really enjoy growing them. Um, I enjoy eating them, and so it's kind of one of my favorite parts of the farm. And I'm kind of looking for excuses or reasons to plant more of them. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, keep that in mind when, uh, when you're evaluating, you know, why we do that and whether it's worthwhile for us. Import- um, it's, I think it's an important part of any enterprise, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a vegetable farm. If you got to, you got to enjoy it. I mean, yeah, if you're not yeah, enjoying it, you may as well go spend your money someplace else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's and as far as marketing currently, as you said, we have an, like an add-on for a CSA share. Um, we did that because when we surveyed folks, there was a you know significant minority of members who said they didn't want to pay extra to get apples, um, and so we felt like we couldn't just you know 
ignore those people. Some of them were longtime members and all. We wanted, you know, they were important to our farm. Um, and so we really had to sort of carve out a, a way for them to get, you know, only vegetables. Um, we, we, you know, it, kind of our preference would be to keep it simple and give everyone the same thing, but we just didn't think it was, it was reasonable to do that. Um, and yeah, so about two thirds of our members currently choose that, that apple option. Um, uh, a lot of our trees are not at full production yet. Um, and so our sort of our harvests aren't what they are. they will be in a few years, we hope. Um, but our, a long-term goal is that people who are getting our, our large size box. We get five pounds of apples a week if they chose the apple option. And our standard size box would be um, getting about three, three pounds per week. Um, that's kind of our target there. And you're growing quite a wide variety of apples. And I think skipping out on some of the common supermarket varieties. Yeah, that's um, that was kind of a deliberate decision we made. Everything we grow is resistant to apple scab, which is a um, like probably the most major disease of apples, and at least in the eastern United States, um, and can be managed organically, um, but requires a lot of of sprays um, in the spring, or, you know, and really careful attention to the timing. Um, and you know, in a wet year, you may not really get you know fantastic control. Um, you know, there are organic growers in our region who grow varieties that are susceptible to scab, you know, the more familiar supermarket varieties. Um, and, you know, it's possible to do a pretty decent job of that. We just didn't want to sort of get involved with that. And in the context of our diverse farm where we have a lot of things to manage, we wanted, you know, it felt like it was a good opportunity to just eliminate one big trouble spot with the apples. And um, in retrospect, I'm pretty glad we did that. Um, and we've had, you know, pretty reasonable success getting, you know, nice, cosmetically, you know, good and, and good tasting apples, um, you know, as beginners who are doing a lot of other things at the same time and can only devote so much of our time to apples. Um, but, yeah, from a marketing standpoint, that's a bit of a challenge. You know, so we're growing varieties like Liberty and Wine Crisp and Crimson Crisp, and Gold Rush, and you know things that aren't household names. And I, selling them through a CSA is is good, I think, because you have we have sort of a captive audience. You know, if we put an apple in their box, they're going to try it, even if it's not the variety they would have picked off the shelf at the store. And as long as it tastes good, they'll probably you know be okay with it and like it. Um, but if we are selling at a farmer's market or you know, relying mostly on um, direct, you know, selling to stores or through wholesale channels, I think that would be more of an issue because apples are a crop where there's a lot of name recognition for varieties. Um, but that said, we did start selling them, our, a lot of our fruit to um, our store accounts this year and had pretty good um, feedback. You know, there's very little in the way of organic, locally grown organic apples available in our area. Um, and so, even though the varieties were unusual, there was um, they were able to, to sell quite a few of them, and we had really good feedback. So um, it may not be as big of a problem as we anticipated. That's great. How important is the cosmetic quality on the apples for your CSA members? Because I mean, my understanding with trying to grow apples organically is that it's not. I mean, it, it certainly has something to do with with yield and and not having worms in your apples, but it also just has to do with it's hard to grow a pretty apple that people are actually going to pick up and buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, 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 there's both going on. I mean, it, 
to sort of step back and not answer your question immediately. I mean, like apple scab is not just, you know, a cosmetic issue. It just can defoliate trees and, you know, re- really reduce yield. Um, and there some of the things like insects in the apple, which I would say are more than cosmetic, you know, are a serious potential issue that we have to control. Um, but there also are, I mean, the sooty blotch and fly speck are two um, pretty much just cosmetic fungal diseases are really just, you can literally wash off or scrape off with your fingernail. They're, you know, completely superficial on the skin of the fruit. Um, and it does give us some trouble. You know, we have, we do a lot of spraying to control them. Uh, we have to be really careful with our brush washing after harvest to, to get as much of that off as we can. And, you know, the samples we give, give out are still not supermarket you know, absolutely unblemished quality. Um, but for the most part, members have been okay with that. We've had a few comments like, oh, they looked a little rough. And, um, you know, it's, but I think most people have been pretty accepting. And from a management perspective, I mean, you've really added on another layer of complexity to your already existing vegetable operation. I mean, the apples, if you're going to spray to control fungal diseases, have to get sprayed at the moment that they need to get sprayed. It's not like you can say, oh, I'm going to just take care of that next week. How has that, how has that integration gone for you? Yeah, it's been a big challenge. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, there's a whole nother level of, um, I mean, horticulturally, they're just much more complicated to grow than most vegetables. Uh, I think that's, you know, they just aren't the issues in carrots with insects and diseases that there are with apples. And, um, so yeah, and you know, the, the scouting, you know, trapping for insects, we never did that with vegetables. You know, we, we sprayed our brassicas, you know, once a week for cabbage worms and that was about it, you know? And, um, whereas, you know, now we're spraying, you know, once or twice a week, the apples for most of the season with like, you know, a cocktail of different, you know, the organic sprays. So it's, um, just, you know, knowing what to do and deciding what to do is a lot more challenging. Um, and then, yeah, there's a, there's a timing issue. Like we're using an air blast sprayer cause that's, that's the only practical thing, you know, even on a relatively small scale orchard. And then you can only spray, you know, when conditions are calm. So you know, trying to work that in, um, is, is a, can be a real constraint. Um, and then something which I didn't really necessarily appreciate is that the work is all different from the work we do in the vegetables, um, you know, and with the different vegetable crops, I mean, it's, they're very different, you know, kind of, you know, they're in terms that they're from different families and all, but you kind of, you do the same steps to grow them. You know, we have, we transplant them all basically in the same way. We use one seeder to seed all of them. Um, you know, we use the same tools to weed pretty much all of them. Um, whereas like we don't do those things with apples so you have to like prune them and, um, you know, and that's, that's a totally different, you know, type of work or, you know, hanging up insect traps is something we just don't do with the vegetables. So there's like another layer of training if we want to, you know, get employees involved with the apples that we weren't really doing before, um, as well as just, you know, a huge amount of kind of management farmer time in terms of just monitoring them and, and doing the spraying. Um, I would say a really key factor is that We've been really fortunate in the last four years to have an employee who's taken, who's sort of our packing shed manager and does a lot of other things on the farm, but is taken a lot of the day-to-day management that used to fall on Yuli and I, and now she's doing that, um, and has basically freed up my time to 
pay attention to the apples and worry about, you know, the next spray for Pumpkerculio and, and so on. Um, and that's, you know, with, without a real sort of management level employee, um, I think the apples would be a really huge burden to, to take care of. That actually leads me to something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you said you've got six employees and and you're describing now a situation where for you to do your job well of managing the apples, which are a significant part of your operation, you need somebody who's good in in that position of, uh, of being somebody like a packing shed manager. Um, where are you getting your employees? Yeah, that's it's been an ongoing challenge. Um, they're pretty much in every case since we've started farming here. Uh, we've been having employees for, for 10 years now. They've been people who, you know, were living in the area. So we haven't had folks who came in from elsewhere just to work on our farm. Um, and when you say living in living in the area, living in kind of the Belmont, Platteville area, not living in the Madison or Dubuque area. Um, not, we never had someone from Madison. We've had a few people from Dubuque, which is, you know, half an hour away. So it's, you know, kind of getting on the edge of commutable distance. Um, we have one person for a few years now who's come from about 45 minutes away. That's probably the most, um, that's, you know, we've ever, we've ever, the longest commute we've ever had. Um, and yeah, um, we've had pretty good luck with sort of short season summer workers, like sort of in the June to August time frame, because there's a university in Platteville, there's students there, um, and we kind of recruit from that pool. And um, for the most part, as long as we're willing to interview a lot of people and weed out the people who aren't really suited for the job, we've been able to get pretty good workers there. Um, and then we've also sort of tapped into a, a pool of people in the area, often people who've grown up on, you know, livestock and crop farms in this area who are looking for summer jobs, you know, and and later in high school or while they're in college. Um, And and some of those people have been really excellent, you know, in terms of their work ethic and and their work. Um, The more challenging thing for us is to find people who can work for more than just the summer vacation, you know, people who can start in March or April and work through October or November. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's been really hit or miss. Um, and so a lot of times I can't say there's like a consistent demographic that we're, we're reaching out to or, or, or tapping into. It's just kind of been luck that, you know, we put out ads and occasionally we get some really good people who've stayed for a while. Um, you know, the, obviously it's, it's difficult as, you know, a lot of, you know, produce farmers know that, you know, we have seasonal jobs, um, you know, for maybe eight or nine months at most, and, you know, our pay isn't really high, and it's not really a livable profession for a lot of adults, unless, you know, to support themselves or a family, you know, year-round. So a lot, you know, some of the people we've gotten are, you know, in a situation where they're, you know, they're in, their spouse has, you know, got a higher income or health insurance and um, they're not looking to this job to, you know, really support their whole family. This is something, you know, they're doing, you know, partially for, for income and partially, you know, maybe for personal interest and so on. And in addition to those six full-time employees, then do you guys hire part-time people? Yeah, I, I should have clarified that number. It's like, it was like six full-time equivalents. So in this past year, I'm you know, thinking we had five full-time people at the peak and plus you know, three part-timers, um, you know, sort of adding up to roughly six full-time equivalents. So, yeah, we've done both. Uh, we have a, we've had a part-time worker who works two days a week, has been with us for four years, and 
you know, that's fantastic. She makes, you know, a huge contribution on the day she's here. So we're definitely, you know, open to that. Um, although in general, as a trend, we've switched more to full-time workers as, as, as our workforce has increased. And that's partially kind of deliberate because, you know, when you only have three people on the farm, if two of them are part-time and you know, we didn't feel like it added a huge training burden, but if everyone was part-time now, we had like 12 or 15 employees, just keeping track of them all and the scheduling and training them could get to be a, kind of a nightmare. So it's nice to have most of them be full-time, certainly for that reason. And then you guys also have a member worker program for your CSA, right? We do. Um, and it's it's had a, a checkered history. Um we started it at the same time we started hiring employee, you know, regular paid employees in 2007. Um, and at the time, you know, a lot of CSAs have a, a program, at least in our area, where um, you'll maybe get a free share in return for working like an afternoon a week for 20 weeks. Um, and we didn't really want to go on that model because, you know, a lot of our members are a little bit distant from our farm, you know, an hour in a way in Madison. And we thought that was a long drive for people to make on a weekly basis. Um, and we really wanted to, wanted to have an opportunity to, you know, get as many people out here as we could to have them get a personal connection with the farm. And so we, we started this program where we had a schedule of work shifts um, throughout the growing season, you know, Saturday, April 15th from 8.30 to noon and, you know, Wednesday, July 11th from 1 to 5 and so on. Um, and people could choose, you know, any number of these shifts when they signed up. Um, and for each shift that they chose, they got a $25 rebate on the price of their share. Um, and we, we did that for, I guess, about six years, really through 2012. Um, and at the peak, we had a lot of... Um, People coming out. I think it was about you know about 150 shifts. Well, not 150 separate days, but there were uh, you know people deducted $25 from their price 150 times, kind of thing. And you know, so some sometimes at a shift there'd be five or eight people, sometimes only one. And um, it we would set a limit per shift, kind of based on what we anticipated we'd need. Um, and then we, after that, that, that shift would be full and you couldn't choose it anymore off the schedule. Um, and, you know, pretty much for a lot of the season, every Saturday morning and every Wednesday afternoon, we had a shift and, you know, sometimes there'd be 10 people, sometimes only one. Um, and, you know, for a few years, we felt like it really contributed a lot to the farm, both in actually getting some important work done and also in, you know, forging a connection between us and the members. But in the end, it was just, it was too much stress um, to, to administer during the growing season. I don't mean like the paperwork or the, you know, computer work of administering it, but the actual time that I had to spend out there with those members, you know, twice a week, I had to be in the field side by side with them, um, or at least a, a very competent employee had to be there with them. Um, and, you know, there's often new people who had to be trained and really had to be watched carefully because this may have been the first time they were at the farm. Um, and sometimes you'd only get one person at a shift. And, you know, there was a Saturday, there'd be Saturday mornings where I was out there alone with that one person. And that just didn't seem like a good use of my time when you know, I was out there Monday to Friday with a crew of five or six employees who are a lot more productive. I mean, that Saturday morning was like 
you know, worth, you know, very little in terms of getting things done. Um, and I, you know, we felt like that time should be, you know, better spent, you know, doing tractor work or office work or something that, you know, really with a better use of my time. And so after that, we scaled that program back dramatically starting, um, I believe in 2013. So now we just have four shifts a year and they're big shifts with like 10 or 12 people. We try to get a really big job done, like separating all our garlic cloves for planting or transplanting our tomatoes and peppers. Um, so it's, but it's not, you know, really dragging or committing me to a lot of, you know, work throughout the growing season and managing them. So it sounds like something that, that had more value when your farm was young and then, and then the value relative to the cost, uh, you know, the real, the, the time and, and energy costs to you declined. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's real. That's true. And I think a lot of it had to do with our labor crew increasing in size, our, our regular crew of employees, you know, and as I said, I, you know, if we have five or six people here every day, like they're getting a lot of work done. Having a few members doesn't add very much, but you know when we had only one or two employees here every day, like having a shift on Saturday morning with four, you know, even four inexperienced workers, you know, still made a difference. And um, so, yeah, the returns, you know, seemed a lot greater. Um, the other thing is that we became better as em- employers. Like we got better at hiring employees, picking out good ones, better at training them, you know, giving them responsibilities, all those things. So I think the productivity of our paid employees has really increased with our experience, but we didn't improve as much in managing members. And I'm not sure there's as much room for improvement. You know, you're, um, you know, we couldn't really, really, you know, weed out the bad workers in advance. It wouldn't really seem like a practical way of doing that. Um, and there's just not that much opportunity to really train someone well in one four-hour shift and so on. So uh, over time, kind of the disparity between the productivity of our employees and the productivity of the member workers was increasing and, and really noticeably. That's really interesting how you're pinning that to your development as employee managers and and really developing that skill and how that really changes where you can where you're going to get the most out of your time and energy. Yeah, no, I think we have, you know, we have definitely gotten better as managers. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we, we still make tremendous amount of mistakes. I mean, all the time I'm out there and thinking, Oh my gosh, you know, I should have told that person to do something different. I should have, you know, you know, any number of things, you know, we're just almost wasting people's time, you know, it's a, it's a terrible supervision, but on the whole, it's gotten better still. So. With that, uh, we're going to take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Chris McGuire from Two Onion Farm. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for organic growers since 1992. Founder and owner Carl Hammer got started as an organic vegetable grower, where he learned that quality transplants really mattered and that quality transplants come from quality potting soils. Makes sense. Just like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost Company's potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's fall pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price and the best shipping options. With their full truckloads and shared truckloads program, they organize shipping to other regions in ways that sometimes gets prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. 
Plus, you pay a lower price for the potting soil. To get a quote from Vermont Compost, go to the ordering page on their website, submit the request to quote form. This form also adds you to their mailing list, so you stay in the loop on the program. And remember, the donkeys that I mentioned earlier are the real thing. And you get a little bit of donkey manure in every patch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook download when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I've been a fan of the spoken word since I read along with children's stories on a portable 78 RPM record player. I love the way that engaging the oral tradition works with a different part of my brain than reading does and the presence that it brings to ideas and voices. And it's so easy to tap into spoken word audio now that you probably carry an iDevice or an Android with you just about everywhere you go. Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from, ranging from great science fiction and romance to self-help and business titles. I want to recommend one book that will resonate with anybody who has run a business or a farm, The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Gerber lays out the fundamental challenge of making the leap from being great at doing the work to becoming great at running a business and provides practical suggestions for fostering that change. Just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free download of The E-Myth Revisited or any other book from Audible's extensive library. All right, and we're back with Chris McGuire from Two Onion Farm in Belmont, Wisconsin, down in the that's the southwest corner of Wisconsin. I had to take a minute and visualize the map there. Um, Chris, before we went on break, you were talking about how you've improved your employee management, how, how that's changed your relationship with the member worker program. But I'm really interested in digging into the the real nuts and bolts, practical steps that you've taken to improve your labor management. You know, I think, you know, one thing is just the hiring process. I mean, you know, that's a really critical step with employees is just finding the right person to begin with. Um, you can't really, there's not a whole lot you can do with a really, you know, bad or, or mediocre employee. And, um, and, you know, right from the beginning, we had some fantastic workers, but I think we've you know, overall gotten better in, in, in picking out at least, you know, pretty good ones. And, um, you know, it's the, I think one, you know, really important thing we've learned is, is having a trial work day when we hire people. So everyone who's, who we're considering you know, has to come for at least a half day of, of trial work here in you know, the winter or spring when we're, when we're doing our, our recruitment. Um, and that's like you know, the most important part of our, our hiring process. Um, we actually started doing that fairly early, so I can't really say that it's that in particular is something that's improved. Um, what has improved, I think, is our interpretation of the trial work days. Uh, <laughs> you know, in that, in the sense that we used to be pretty forgiving of of issues that we noticed during those those work days, um, and we've kind of come to the realization. Actually, we are helped in this by one of our CSA members, who is like a kind of a HR uh, consultant, and we were talking to her, and she said, you know, listen, like when someone comes to a trial work day, that is their best performance. You know, they're on trial and they know it. And, you know, they're, they're as motivated and as interested as they're ever going to be. So if, if they seem like a little lackluster, I mean, forget it. Like they're only going to get worse. Um, and that was like a real light bulb moment for me. Um, and I, in thinking about like people we, you know, interviewed before that point and then going forward, it really clarified things for me. Now, um, 
people will make mistakes at trial work days out of inexperience or, you know, this is the first time they were doing something. And that's forgivable. Definitely. You know, that's um, perfectly, you know, fine. And we try to explain that to people that, you know, it's our job as supervisors to show them what needs to be done. So they don't quite get it right away. That's okay. Um, But any like, failure of, of motivation or sort of attitude or work ethic or being sloppy or inattentive or showing up late, all those things only get worse, you know, once you've hired that person, um, you know, those, and it, it's, it sounds really harsh to say that. Um, and it, it was hard for me to internalize it because, you know, I like to think of myself as a fairly, you know, forgiving patient person. Um, and so it was, I was really inclined to say, oh, they were nervous, you know, and it was their first time here and, you know, so on. But that's really not the case. Um, that's like kind of showing this kind of worker they are. Um, and so that, that, that simple kind of attitude change toward the trial work days has really um, helped us, I think, a lot in, in, in picking better workers. Not that we don't continue to make mistakes, but I think it's helped a lot. Um, the other thing I'd say with the recruitment process is just the the understanding that you have to be willing to talk to a lot of people and that we try not to like pick winners based on their initial contact, say, but, you know, really try to consider a bunch of people and have a bunch of people out here for a trial work day. And that's, that's time consuming. It's draining, you know, sort of psychologically and all. Um, and but, it's hard because you, know, you end up telling yeah. it's a lot of people that you end up having to say no to. That's also true. Yeah. Yep. No, and it's, that's, that's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I try to be a person who makes everyone like me. And, you know, I, I've, I have to really stop myself from practically offering people jobs when they come for a trial work day, just, you know, to make them happy and all. <laughs> I understand exactly what, what you mean by that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the hiring part of it, I'd say. Um, and as far as once we actually get people here, um, and, and, you know, and they've started working, um, you know, improvements that we've made. One thing is definitely giving over uh, more responsibility to employees. You know, when we first started, we really, when we first started hiring people, we really felt like, um, you know, there's, there's all these, this important skill work that only we can do. You know, the employees can like weed and they can pick green beans, but that's about it. You know, any tractor driving or direct seating or, you know, anything that seems to involve some more responsibility has to be done by Yuli or Chris, period. Um, and, you know, we sort of gradually let up on that. And it's it's been like universally an improvement. I mean, every time that we've, you know, given over responsibility to people, I think it's a, a positive thing. Um, you know, if, you know, just the obvious benefit that it's sort of one less thing that we have to do, of course, but, um, it also really, you know, improves that person's motivation and investment in the job and their, their sort of their happiness with it because they, they recognize that they've been given some extra responsibility and that, you know, it's, that's gives people a boost to make them feel more important than all. Um, and as long as we pick like a decent person for that, for that role, say, you know, we, we select like a you know pretty reasonable, competent person to do our direct seating. Like that person is going to do a better job than I would. Um, really? Guaranteed. Yeah, because they um, will give it their full attention. Like you know, when I take that person aside and say, like, you know, we've chosen you for this very important job. I mean, um, 
being a little bit silly, but that's kind of the attitude I try to take to really impress on them that like, you know, this is an important area of responsibility that they're being awarded. And that, you know, so that makes them realize like, oh, this is important. And I've got to, you know, really put my best foot forward when I'm doing this. And then, you know, I hammer down like the simple rules. And when you're direct seeding, like you've got to make sure there's seed in the hopper. (laughs) Don't let it run out. You've got to make sure you have the right plate in there. Um, And you've got to make sure that it doesn't get clogged with trash when you're pushing it down the row. Um, You know, and then that person, like when they go to direct seed, that's the only thing they're going to pay attention to. Whereas if I was doing it, I'd be worrying about, you know, what, is it going to be calm enough for me to spray the apples tonight? And is that other person at the other end of the field slacking off? Do I need to go check on them? Did I forget to tell them, you know, X and Y and all these other things? And I would run out of seed in the hopper and, you know, plant, not plant half a row because of it. Okay, um, but, I, but I'm thinking about all the things that can go wrong while you're seeding. I mean, you know, you talked about, mm-hmm. you talked about getting trash caught up in the seeder. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the soil conditions aren't quite right. It's 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 too clumpy, or or, um, you know the the I mean even stupid things like the humidity's too high, and and the the seeds are sticking to the side of the hopper. I don't know if that happens with the jang. It used to happen to my Earthway. Um, I mean how how do you deal with all of that variability? Because I know that's one reason why a lot of managers, including myself, um, you know, tended to hold on to things like direct seeding really tightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right. Those, that's the sort of the the thorn in the whole issue is like when real there really is kind of experience, judgment, skill required, and that the new person doesn't have that. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, there's no simple answer to that. I mean, you know, one thing is you know definitely trying to get that job down to some discrete like identifiable things that the person has to pay attention to, like, you know, rules, protocols, and so on. And, um, you know, when I'm doing a job, like trying to think about like, all right, what does this really consist of? Like all that, you know, so-called experience and skill that I'm bringing to it. Like, you know, really, you're really trying to boil it down. Um, and you know, some jobs it's easier than others, definitely. Um, and you know, um, I, yeah, I don't, it's not really, you know, something like with the direct seeding, you know, we weigh the seed before we start and after we're done. Um, you know, the, like the seed in the packet, like before you take it out, you weigh it, we come back in, we weigh it again. Um, and we do that partially just to like track how much seed we use and, you know, for ordering seed the next year. But it's also like a way of catching mistakes. Because let's say the humidity or whatever, you know, some problem with the seeder is actually causing an issue you know, maybe I would have noticed it right away because I'm more attuned, you know, more experienced or whatever. But at least this inexperienced seeder will notice it when they weigh the seed. And when they give me the report and I look at it the next morning, I'm like, wait, you didn't use any seed yesterday. Um, and then, you know, okay, maybe that planting was screwed up, but it's not going to like go on for the rest of the year. Um, so, and I, I honestly feel in my experience, like that the potential for those kind of problems to occur that, you know, where the inexperienced person doesn't recognize it and I would have are outweighed by the number of problems where I run the seed, you know, hopper empty. <laughs> That's happened multiple times. And I can only you know, maybe think of once or twice where the operator made an error that I would have not made, you know, because of my experience and so on. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, it, it's, it's still a judgment call 
you know, there's there's certain jobs that I still only do myself because because of what you said. I don't feel like, um, you know, I haven't got to that point in my in my confidence in employees or whatever, or you know, or my understanding of the task that I feel like I can train someone else to do it well. Um, but still, you know, getting back to the original question of like how we've improved our labor management, I think that like giving over responsibilities has improved the satisfaction of our employees with the job and also the quality of the work that's been done in pretty much every case. Thank you for, for all those details. One thing that I, I noticed on your website that's interesting is you guys actually have employment as a top-level navigation item and then a fairly detailed rundown of what people can expect working at your farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that was a deliberate decision we made. So like the way it is is we have like kind of an intro to working at the farm before you or we hope people read that before they get into like the specific job description with the pay and then the schedule and all. Um because uh and I think this is another area that we've improved. We tried to sit down and like really hammer out in our own minds what are we looking for in a person? Like what what do you need to be successful here? And I think this would be different for different farms, but for us, you know, it really came down to, you know, being a quick worker, being a careful worker and like doing a good job, um, getting along with the other people on the crew and being able to cooperate and communicate with them. And then like most importantly, having a good attitude and like sort of respecting the work, respecting us, um, and you just you know, like not being a jerk and, and those kind of things. Um and so we have that. That's one of the things we really try to emphasize on that intro page. Um, and we want people to read that and understand it. We kind of use it as a somewhat of a testing device during the interview process. Like, you know, we always ask this question, like, why would you be good at this job? Um, and hopefully in their answer to that, the person will say, you know, because I'm quick, I'm careful, I get along with my coworkers, and I have a great attitude. Um, right. <laughs> which basically shows that, you know, they were, you know, in tune enough that they actually read that description and, you know, at least try to, you know, remember it and maybe internalize it and so on. Um, you know, if the person doesn't, you know, speak to our needs at all when they're asked that question, that's to me indicates that, you know, they don't really care what we want or, you know, what we're looking for, and that's not a good sign. Um, and then it continues past the the interview process into the you know actual training and, and working with that person. We really you know I try to sort of come back to those points you know during like performance reviews, like really say you know are you meeting these four areas? Um, and like I use it in my own mind as like evaluating people and I'm watching them work. Like, wait, are you doing these things? And if not, I need to go and talk to you about it. And, um, I think being clear with people about what you want is, um, a huge part of getting them to do well. Um, you know, most employees, like they don't want to screw up, Chris, you know, they, they want to come here and do a good job. And, um, I think, you know, sort of realizing that and then making, doing our best as supervisors to make it crystal clear to them what constitutes a good job here on this farm. Like that's, you know, really what we have to do as employers. The person who recommended you to be on the show said that you guys did a really great job of record keeping and, um, and then a really good job of decision making that you do as a result of your record keeping. So I wanted to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So I mean, just to, to, 
throw that out there as a little bit of a vague question. Can you tell us about your record keeping approach? Uh, yeah, um, I have to confess that I was a little surprised uh, when when you mentioned this in an email before our conversation that you know someone had suggested me on that basis. But because um, I have a hard time thinking of. You know, a lot of big decisions we've made on our farm on the basis of, of records. Um, but I do feel like we've made a lot of small, maybe incremental improvements. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess as far as like what records we keep, um, we do, I do try to have the attitude that like a record should be useful in, in the future. And so if I'm doing something over the winter and I say, oh gosh, you know, I can't like, make this decision because I, I forgot to write something down or, or you know, or um, like whether we should plant this variety again, for instance, or, you know, did we, is there, do we have a good planting date for our Brussels sprouts last year? And, um, you know, I didn't write down when we planted the Brussels sprouts or I didn't make any notes on that trial lettuce variety. You know, that's, that to me is like a real failure of record keeping. Like, you know, I wanted to have some records and they weren't there to use. Um, so, you know, over the years, I've tried to, you know, improve a little bit each year that way and, um, and you know, make notes to myself to look at during the growing season that you've got to, like, write this stuff down. or And in some cases, done the opposite, where I've realized that, like, we're not using this information I spent a bunch of time writing down, so we should stop and just forget about it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my, my overall, you know, rationale there. Um, the so the, I mean the main records that we keep and I think the ones that are most useful or to me have been like the basic stuff about plantings like when when we planted them when we transplanted them when we harvested them and the amount that we harvested on each of the harvest dates like that simple information has been you know hugely important in in the kind of small incremental improvements I mentioned before like you know fine tuning planting dates for succession plantings of lettuce or eliminating low yielding varieties. Um, and that, you know, I think there's a lot of, as a, you know, as a beginning farmer, there's a lot of room for improvement in those areas, especially on a diverse vegetable farm. We are growing a lot of different things. And, you know, looking back, we had a lot of just waste and, and kind of sort of sloppiness because of bad planting dates or varieties that weren't really that good. And, uh, or, you know, spacings um, that weren't, you know, where we could have planted stuff closer together and and, um, and just, you know, hammering away at those things, chipping away at them year after year can, you know, increase your yields and, and, and profits a lot in the long run. Um, one thing that we kept really careful records on for a while and then discarded actually was time records of like, you know, how much time we spent doing every task on every crop. So, you know, we spent 45 minutes on this day, you know, hand weeding the carrot planting from July 3rd. And we spent, you know, 30 minutes hand weeding the carrot planting from July 20th. And, you know, and then we spent, you know, 10 minutes, you know, pulling out posts from our pepper planting and, you know, this, and then, you know, so we had this huge amount of data on, you know, how much time we spent doing everything on every planting, which, I thought it would be fabulous because it would allow us to, you know, I don't know what I thought actually, um, because I don't think we really used that data in too many important or useful ways. Um, 
you know, as a CSA farm, we feel somewhat locked into having a diverse mix of crops. So we never eliminated a, a crop because it was, you know, unprofitable to grow uh, because, you know, it took too much time um, relative to the yield. And, and nor do we really invest in very much like labor-saving machinery or devices based on that time data. And it was really time-consuming to um, keep that. Uh, that those records. I did all the entering them in the computer every morning during the growing season. It was a chore, especially when you have, you know, six or eight people working on your farm and they do a dozen things during the day. And um, so that's something we, we gave up. Uh, the only thing we do it for now uh, is the apples because they're my favorite crop, as I mentioned earlier, and because they're fairly new. And I, um, and I feel like, you know, I do want to sort of know where, you know, this, I feel like that's an area where we're really trying to sort of actively improve and do things more efficiently. And I do kind of want to know how long things are taking. And um, well, and and, it, and and it's an add-on where you've got a distinct product. So I mean, it it almost it you need to know how much time yeah, you're spending right. on the apples because that's going to be a significant point of pricing that item in your yeah, marketplace. Absolutely, yeah. The other thing where we do keep time records still. Um, is sort of for individual tasks, like as benchmarking. So, and not always, not always, but like, you know, sometimes during the year, I'll try to keep a time record of like how long it took us to transplant or to direct or to, you know, see trays in the greenhouse or to wash carrots, you know, things that are like pretty big tasks that we do fairly often and take a lot of time. Um, you know, it's a sort of just to have an idea of how long they take for planning purposes. Like, you know, how long should I expect it to take to harvest that bed of carrots this week? Um, it's nice to have some data to look back on or and to maybe catch like, oh, my gosh, we're spending a ton more time, you know, washing carrots this year than we did last year. Like, what's going on here? Or um, So we do sort of keep sort of some sporadic records on that, but it's not an exhaustive uh timing everything all the time kind of effort really more of a sampling to to benchmark how things are going yeah yep yeah and and that has been useful because like, actually in the carrot washing we did invest in a barrel washer a few years ago and then we can tell you know and an undercutter for carrot harvesting and you know it's a pretty big crop on the farm um and so it's you know it's good to know you know whether we should invest in those things and whether they've paid dividends um yeah. Another kind of record keeping I'd mention is, is actually like about purchases. And I mean, I guess everyone has to track the money they spend for like tax reasons and all, but I find it's really helpful to have like really good records of what we've bought and um, like, not just like, you know, we went to farm and fleet and spent $116 on, you know, supplies, but like actually what we bought. And sometimes I even write down item numbers um, and like, you know, assign everything to a category, like this was for the greenhouse and, you know, this was, you know, for trellising and, and, and so on. Um, and it makes future shopping a lot easier because then I can go look at item numbers. I know what pair of gloves we got for this last, you know, for, you know, for this particular job last time. And I don't have to, you know, wonder and go out and try to find them in the packing shed and look at the label inside the glove and all this stuff. And, <laughs> right. it. Um, and then, you know, sort of track and being able to, um, 
you know, you track expenses by category year to year and, and um, you know, see that we're making some progress maybe in cutting down the amount we spend on certain things and all that. That's been pretty useful, I feel. And not really that time consuming. I mean, we don't buy that much. Um, it's not like we're, you know, buying a dozen things every day. How do you organize that information? Because, I mean, it's one thing just to say like, okay, I, I wrote down on the receipt, the model number of the glove, but but putting that into a, a useful place so that the next time you want some gloves, you can actually find it without spending a half an hour at it. How do you do that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, see, we're using a, a Microsoft Access database. Um, and, you know, that's something I, I had experience with it in a previous job. And so it was kind of, you know, a natural choice when we started farming. It, it's not like necessarily a great tool. It's a software system, for, especially if you don't have prior experience with it. It's fairly complicated. But I think the, like the key elements of it are, um, you know, having this sort of like in a table, you know, where like each row that you've, you've got, even it's just a spreadsheet, you know, is like something you bought and, you know, when you bought it and how much it cost and, you know, maybe an item number. I mean, I, I mentioned that and we certainly don't record item numbers for like every single thing we buy, but, you know, sometimes when I feel like it's going to be something we'll buy again later and I want to know that. Um, and, and like putting it into a category, you know, so we have like a whole, I mean, over time, this, all the categories we have has kind of gotten mushroomed into a huge number just because we add, you know, a couple every year for new things and so on. But, you know, things like, uh, you know, hand tools and seed and um, fuel and, you know, uh, greenhouse supplies and you know, so on. I mean, whatever kind of makes sense for for your, you know, operation and your way of thinking about things. Um, the other thing that we do, and I think it's somewhat useful, is we do – for everything we buy, we say, is it, you know, an operating or, I'm sorry, is it a fixed or variable um, expense? And, and that's somewhat useful when we thought about, like, scaling up the CSA to be able to say, like, you know, we're spending this much, you know, on expenses kind of per CSA share. And then we have this other sort of overhead fixed, you know, set of costs that we want to kind of keep separate. One other thing that I had noticed when I was looking around about your farm is that you guys put up a new transplant production greenhouse last winter. How'd that work out for you? Yeah, uh, it, it's been good. Um, it was a big investment for us, and um, I mean, I guess to give the background, we when we started here, we really, you know, put up some very cheap um, structures to raise our ceilings in, and we struggled along with them for many years. So we had sort of small cold frames with electric heating cable buried in the ground. Um, and, you know, you, you, these were things that were like four feet high. You couldn't even walk into them. And we you know, laid trays on and, trays on the ground in there, and we covered them with row cover on cold nights. And um, then after, you know, uh, five or six years of that, we did put up some small plastic-covered, you know, like Quonset greenhouses. Um, but even they were, you know, pretty primitive. And we, we did all of our sort of potting work, like actually seeding the trays in another building. And then we carried the trays over to this greenhouse. And, um, and, you know, I, you know, and, you know, we sold, um, you know, well over $200,000 worth of vegetables in a year, you know, raising seedlings in really primitive and time consuming ways, um, that we, you know, struggled a lot with, 
especially the cold part of early spring, you know, you know, late March, early April, where you have to be wrestling row cover onto these ceilings every night, and you know, ones around the edge might freeze on a cold night, and it was it was kind of a drag. Um, and so, you know, eventually, some of these things were kind of rotting into the ground, and um, anyway, we felt like we needed to replace them, and then we decided that why don't we replace them with, with something decent, um, and. You know, I, it's financially, I mean, we spent like almost $40,000 on this greenhouse from start to finish, and that's pretty hard to justify at our scale, and I hope we can justify it eventually, but I think it's something that's pretty slow to pay for itself. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's 34 by 72 um, Gothic, you know, greenhouse with a double layer of, of, of uh, polyethylene, you know, pretty standard structure, and we sized it pretty big for our size of a farm because we want to have an ample like work area in there. So a third of it has a concrete floor with a, a drain that we put in and, you know, that's where we can do our mixing soil. We make our own soil mix. So we have to have, you know, piles of ingredients in there and um, we use soil blocks. So that's, you know, that's where we make them and uh, do our, our, all of our planting and potting on. And then the, you know, the rest of the greenhouse is where we actually grow the plants. So it's, um, I guess things that are maybe a little different there is we, we lay our um, trays and ceilings directly on the ground. So the, where there's no concrete, there's packed sand with landscape fabric over it, and we're laying the trays on the ground there. And in the sand underneath the sort of beds where we lay these trays, there's hot water tubing, for, and that's our heat source. So we don't have you know, a propane furnace. We don't make any attempt to heat the air in the greenhouse directly. It's all bottom heat under those seedling trays. Um, and at night we still do cover them with row cover. So we have basically wickets, you know, covering the areas where we lay the seedlings down and we can pretty quickly, you know, drag a row cover with two people and takes, you know, two or three minutes to drag covers over the ceilings at night in the colder part of the year and then take them off in the early morning. Um, and yeah, I, I like that bottom heat. I think it's, you know, it's fairly economical in terms of how much, energy you need to actually provide the heat needed for the plants to grow because we're not trying to heat the whole air cavity, you know, all the whole airspace in the greenhouse, but just the actual, you know, area where the plants are. And then at night we're enclosing them and under a blanket there. Um, I guess the other thing that we did there is we put in an automatic watering system. Um, so if you can visualize, we've got wickets over the trays of seedlings and then, Running and from the top of these wickets, they're suspended a water line with little sprinklers, and it's just a kind of standard greenhouse sprinkler system that we got from Nolts Produce Supply. Um, and then we can set it on a timer, so we're going to water the seedlings for 20 minutes, and we walk away, and, and you know it, it does it, and then shuts off automatically. And um, that's something we were really pleased with. Uh, the you know, I've heard kind of negative comments about automatic watering from other growers that, you know, they, they kind of, they trusted it too much and sort of ended up having problems with either too much watering or too little because, you know, they, they set the timer and they walked away and they weren't really paying attention like they would have if they were watering by hand. But with one year of use, that was not a problem for us. Um, you know, we did look at the plants every day before we watered them and made a decision based on that you know, observation, whether to water them at all and whether it was for 15 minutes or 20 or 25 and so on. And we felt like 
but it did a far more even, uniform job than we would have done by hand, just because, you know, the human doesn't have the patience to really do the thorough coverage and all that the automatic sprinkler just does automatically. Um, so we were really happy with that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a great improvement in terms of, you know, work being fun to work with in the early spring and not such a nuisance and a chore as our old system was. Uh, and then, yeah, the automatic watering is great. Um, so yeah, we're pretty happy with it, but it was expensive. Was it worth it? <laughs> I don't know, Chris. Um, it's, you know, I said it's 40,000 that, you know, I mean, we're selling you know, about 200,000 or a little bit more worth of vegetables a year. Um, I mean, you know, you have to have some kind of facility to raise your seedlings, I guess. You know, I'm not aware of anything in our area where we can really buy the transplants that we need, you know. And, um, so, yeah, I, 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 I guess I don't know how to answer the question. I've thought about it, but like, you know, you know, what am I, what's the alternative? You know, what are we comparing it to? You know, is it a cheaper $20,000 greenhouse with a propane furnace and not, you know, the in-ground heat and, and you know, or, so yeah, I'm, I struggle with it. That's good to know. I mean, those big investments, those, those are hard. And sometimes they make such a big difference in your quality of life and, and not necessarily reflected instantly in your bottom line. I think after, you know, 12 or 13 years of being in business, you, you know, usually you're going to run up against things where it's time to, to make that kind of an outlay. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was part of an effort to actually reduce our early season labor needs. That's one of the ways we rationalized it, maybe. Um, and we we have some sort of you know cut that back, and we you know our, we have one employee start at the same time as they used to, kind of in early March. But sort of our next employee slot now starts like in mid late April instead of late March, and now you know that having a vacuum seeder to do the seeding, having the automatic watering, not spending an hour every afternoon, you know, dragging row covers onto plants and multiple tiny little coal frames and, and so on is, you know, is part of the reason behind that. And, um, but I mean, if you add up the numbers to how long it takes, how much we would pay someone for a few weeks and then compare that to $40,000, it would take a long time to justify it that way. With that, Chris, it's time for us to turn to our lightning round. So, What's your favorite tool on the farm? I think uh, a tripod orchard ladder that we use for like picking and pruning apples high in the tree. They're really light. They're made of aluminum, and they're really handy to use, and I love them. Is there a particular brand that you appreciate more than others? Um, Tallman, I believe, is the brand we get. Like Tallman. What's the coolest tool that you've made or adapted for your farm? You know, maybe something we started doing this year, which is um, a system for rolling up and unwinding row cover. So basically, we we took a piece of like 10 foot long galvanized pipe, like the same size you'd use like a purlin of a greenhouse or like a chain link fence top rail. Um, and we, have, we need a lot of these pipes, one for each piece of row cover that we need to roll up. Um, and they all have a hole drilled through, you know, near one end. And then we have a crank that we can insert into that end of the pipe. Um, and there's a pin that goes through the hole in the pipe and through a hole in the crank and like anchors the crank there. So you can use the crank to turn that pipe when you're rolling up row cover and then take the crank out and put it into another pipe, you know, to roll up another piece of row cover. Um, and then this all sits on a, a cart that we made out of wood. 
um, and we can wheel around the edge of our field down to the bed where we need to roll up some row cover. And the, we put the piece of pipe across the cart, you know, slip the crank in, pin it down, and then we can roll up that row cover. Um, and then it's a quick way to roll it up, and it's a really quick way to reuse it because to unroll it over the, the next bed later in the year, you can just, you know, one person grabs each end of that pipe and walks it down the bed on rolling it as they go, and it's, it's a breeze. Um, so a little hard to explain, but it's, it's been a big help to us. I think that's a good, that's a good picture. I mean, it, it is radio. So it looked like from the overhead pictures that I saw of your farm that your beds are all the same length, or at least mostly the same length. Um, they used to be. We've kind of changed that. So yeah, they we used we used to do everything about ninety feet, but we actually combined some parts of our fields. So now we have ninety foot beds, and then like uh, no two hundred two hundred and eighty or so foot beds. Um, but we try to keep it to those two lengths. Okay, so you've either got long pieces of row cover or short pieces of row cover. Yeah, exactly, and they're all labeled. And yeah. What's your favorite crop to grow? Apples. Yeah, that was pretty easy, I think, uh, given given the conversation so far. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, I have a hard question with that, Chris. And I've heard you ask other people, and I don't know how they can think of something. I would just tell them everything I know now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that, you know, I, I guess that's. That works, right? I mean, you know, if you could just kind of infuse that beginning farmer with all the knowledge, um, that'd be great. Yeah. All right. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been fantastic. Hey, you're welcome. That's a pleasure, Chris. I always like to talk about farming. So, yeah, thanks a lot. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 99 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for McGuire. That's M-C-G-U-I-R-E. Transcripts for this episode are brought to you by Growing for Market. Get 20% off your subscription with the code podcast at checkout. And by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. EarthTools.com. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends about us on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can further support the show by going to farmtofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Chris McGuire is on the show today because somebody took the time to go fill out that form and say, hey, you should get Chris on the show. I'll do my best to get your suggestions included in the lineup here at the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Farmer to Farmer.